So man came into the world. Maybe the great artificer made him a seed divine in a plan for a better universe. Maybe the earth that was freshly formed and newly divorced from the heavenly ether retained some seed of its kindred element earth, which Prometheus, the son of Iapetus, sprinkled with raindrops moulded into the likeness of gods who govern the universe. Where other animals walk on all fours and look to the ground, man was given a towering head and commanded to stand erect. With his face uplifted to gaze on the stars of heaven, thus clay, so lately no more than a crude and formless substance, was metamorphosed to assume the strange new figure of man. An extract from the creation myth from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 1, Greece Before History. Today we begin our journey into the wonderful world of Greek history, but first we need to get some insight into the background of this period. The Greeks did not just suddenly appear. They had a long history which led to what we now refer to as the ancient Greeks. That history included the appearance of the first human species into Greece, migrations of different people, the mixing of those people with the indigenous population, the rise and fall of older civilizations, disasters, man-made and natural, and the mixture throughout was innovation and human discovery dealing with the evolving world, natural, political and social. In this episode, we're going to look at what was happening in the distant past, more ancient to the Greeks of the classical age than what the classical Greeks are to us. A lot of the information will mostly come from archaeological evidence that has been uncovered and interpreted, as written sources from these periods are either non-existent or very rare, but start to make an appearance as we start moving closer to the civilised periods. These early episodes are designed to give context to the classical period, where a high proportion of our episodes will focus on. Early on, we will deal with most topics in a brief manner, and as we move closer to the classical period, the detail will start to increase. Today, we will begin by looking at the physical world of Greece, where it is, what areas we are talking about when we refer to Greece, and the environment the Greeks were developing in. Then we'll move on to what archaeology was telling us about the earliest periods in which there is evidence of human activity. Then we'll have a look at what is known as the Indo-European migrations into Greece, the development of new settlements, a technological change. Finally, we will then have a look at one of the main methods used when dating evidence from these periods. But let's now turn to the geography of Greece. When we talk about Greece of the ancient period, we are generally talking about the geographical area roughly identical to the modern-day nation of Greece. We just need to keep in mind that in ancient times, Greece was not a nation-state that we are familiar with today, but more a geographical area where people who identified themselves as Greeks lived. Greece was not only the mainland that is connected to Europe, but also included the hundreds of islands in the Aegean Sea. Also, when we talk about the Greeks in the classical world, we don't just limit our focus to the borders of the modern-day nation of Greece. The ancient Greeks had also set up colonies all around the Mediterranean, in North Africa, the Italian peninsula, coast of modern-day Turkey, modern-day France, Spain, and even into the Black Sea. But having said that, the majority of our focus will be on the mainland area of Greece, as most of the written sources that survive today focus on this area, as it was typically the centre of the Greek world. But don't worry, we'll look into what was happening outside of the mainland, as areas situated further away would become very important to Greece during different points. The mainland of Greece is dominated by mountain ranges, with Mount Olympus in the north being the highest at just under 10,000 feet high. 
This mountainous landscape provided conditions for political seclusion, but were also still allowing trade and diplomacy. The rivers are not navigable, with many rushing torrents in winter and many drying out in the warmer months, so travelling in the interior would have been on foot, contending with the harsh terrain. There were very few large plains, but the largest that were capable of supporting any large agriculture were in Thessaly in the north, and Messenia in the south, and the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese being the southern part of Greece, connected to the mainland by the roughly 6 kilometer wide Isthmus of Corinth. The soil of much of Greece is of poor quality, and very little digging is to be done before striking the rocky crust, further hampering the efforts of raising crops. The soil as well as the unevenness of the ground meant that keeping cattle and horses in large herds was rare throughout most of the mainland. The climate is dry and hot during summer. As winter approaches, the rains and storms increase. The western parts of Greece receive a much higher rainfall, while the east is a lot drier. The majority of settlements were set up within 60 kilometres of the jagged coastline, which helped facilitate seaborne trade and fishing from most. Though large harbours to give protection from the storms were a rarity. The islands of Greece numbered in the thousands, with most in the Aegean Sea, separating Greece from modern-day Turkey, though perhaps only a few hundred were habitable. These islands varied in size, with one of the smallest supporting a population being Delos, which was 3.4 kilometres in area, all the way through to the largest, being Crete, at 8,300 kilometres in area. The islands of the Aegean were very similar to the mainland in the fact that they were very mountainous, giving the sense of flooded valleys with just the mountain tops emerging from the sea. Sailing was a way of life for the Greeks in the Aegean, whether it for fishing, travel or trade. Though the weather in the autumn and the winter could make this way of life extremely hazardous. Even in the summer the Greeks tried to keep land in sight whenever they were at sea and coming ashore when the sun was setting. The geography and climate of Greece would have a great impact on the development that would take place. These impacts would affect how each area shaped its politics, economy and social structures, also having a large impact on how neighbouring cities and even people further afield would interact with each other. The Greeks would also develop a unique way of war when fighting on Greek soil that the rest of the Greek world would adopt. While the Greeks on the coast, especially those with access to harbours, would develop an affinity with the sea, with much of their power and wealth generated from this connection, these geographical considerations would shape people and communities over thousands of years, but before they could, humans needed to occupy and establish themselves in this region of the world. Evidence of human activity in Greece dates back into the Stone Age. This period was named so as the tools and weapons used were made of stone, as well as other materials such as bone and wood. The Stone Age occupies a huge space of time, with dates given for this period at around 400,000 BC to 300,000 BC. And for the time being, we have to be satisfied with the limited archaeological finds that give us a glimpse into this period. The Stone Age is generally further divided into the Paleolithic, also known as the Old Stone Age, lasting for hundreds of thousands of years. The Mesolithic, or Middle Stone Age, dating around 15,000 BC to 8 or 7,000 BC. And the Neolithic, or as you guessed it, the New Stone Age, beginning around 8 or 7,000 BC. During these periods, humans were primarily hunter-gatherers, moving from place to place, living from the animals and plants that they could find. Great migrations of people would have taken place throughout this period, which would have led Greece to being inhabited with humans in the first place, and also explains the transition in different species of humans over the time. The oldest human remains uncovered in Greece were of a skull, 
that was uncovered at Petrolona Cave in the north of Greece, around 35 kilometres from the modern-day city of Thessaloniki. The skull has been estimated to have dated from around 400,000 to 300,000 years ago. There is evidence of another species of human to have occupied Greece as far back as 100,000 years ago, with the remains being found in some caves on the Peloponnese, around the Saronic Gulf. This species is known to us as the Neanderthals, named after the Neander Valley in Germany, where the first example of the species was uncovered. Further migrations then took place as the millennia passed, but this time with a species called Homo sapiens, a species that modern human beings would derive from, which seems to have made their way into Greece around 40,000 years ago. The most studied area in Greece, which Homo sapiens occupied, was a cave at Franchithi. The Franchithi cave is a rare site that shows evidence of extended continuous human occupation, with short periods where it was abandoned, from somewhere around 40,000 BC to 3000 BC. In its earlier times, the cave overlooked a plain where animals such as wild horses and red deer grazed, providing a source of food for the inhabitants. Though as time went on, climatic changes saw the sea level rise, and the plain slowly disappeared, as well as the large game animals and a diet based on seafood and wild plants took over. As diet started to rely on plants, the need arose for continued growth of the halves of plants that often had to be searched for in the surrounding valleys and hills. Eventually, the technology of saving some seeds to plant and create a new crop developed. The beginnings of agriculture can be seen around the Franchithi Cave and in the Thessaly Plains, around 7000 BC. Trade is also seen to have taken place here, with the first evidence of it appearing to have taken place some 13,000 years ago, with obsidian which was originated on the island of Milos. Also in this period are some burials which indicate care for the dead, and is suggestive of a religious system. The early stages of agriculture, coupled with burials and commerce, would seem to suggest the development of a more sophisticated society emerging. From the period 7000 BC onwards, there appears to be a development all over Greece in agriculture, livestock domestication, settlements and social structures. These developments can be seen throughout Macedonia, Thessaly and Boeotia, as there were large enough plains to support these activities for the size of the settlement populations. Evidence in these settlements showed that buildings were being constructed with wooden frames, covered in clay, and some also having stone foundations and clay brick construction. At a large settlement at Sesclo in Thessaly, there were remains of a basement and the evidence of a two-storey structure uncovered. All the evidence found at this settlement suggests it would have supported a population of a couple of hundred people. It would appear that this boom in development also benefited from the contact with other peoples from other regions, such as travellers from the Near East. These people from the East had come from areas that had also developed agricultural technology and the domestication of animals. They had constructed dwellings in a similar manner to how the Greeks were constructing theirs. Further migrations were also taking place from the North, which seems to have been somewhat of a constant over the hundreds of thousands of years. This latest wave of migrations brought with it a new type of language, rooted on a language known as Indo-European, a language that a great many modern-day languages can trace a common link to. The topic of Indo-Europeans can be a controversial one, as when discussed, it tends to rest in the area of ethnicity in people's minds. I think to relegate the Indo-European idea to ethnicity is far too simplistic as it is dealing with languages and ideas that spread out over thousands of years, over thousands of kilometres, and that can draw a common linkage with where the ideas and root language first uncovered themselves to us. I admit I only have a basic understanding of the Indo-European idea, 
but the idea in theory makes an appearance in most ancient Greek studies when dealing with the prehistory period. My intention is to only give an overview of the main idea that seems to be present in most Greek prehistory accounts and studies dealing specifically with Indo-Europeans. The Indo-European idea centres on an area in modern-day Ukraine and Russia, just north of the Black Sea, or perhaps in Anatolia in modern-day Turkey, south of the Black Sea, as some theories also suggest. This is where the oldest traces of the root language and some of the ideas were discovered. It's thought that the idea of horseback riding and the will may have originated in these areas. These discoveries date back to somewhere around as far back as 6500 BC, and then from around 4500 BC, their dispersal can be traced through archaeological finds spreading out from these locations, gradually moving closer to our time and date, further from the central locations that the finds are located. These migrations of language, ideas and people started pushing north into Eurasia, south and east into Anatolia, the Near East, Central Asia and west into Europe. As the migrations continued through time, it is very possible that a large percentage of people migrating were not ethnically the same as the people who originated in the Black Sea regions, and may well have been other groups that had been influenced by Indo-European ideas after coming into contact with them. Also of note, it is even likely that the Indo-European homeland wasn't a single ethnic group, as it covered such a large area. Migrations can be fast, violent shifts in population, but may also take place over hundreds of years, through less violent means, while earlier migrations can cause further movement as they come into contact with other cultures. Another offshoot theory is that the Indo-European languages and ideas spread west from Anatolia once they had reached and further developed there. This proposal has used archaeological evidence to also support it, and also points to the spread of agricultural technology making a westward push from here. Whatever the route, or perhaps combination, as the migrations took place and mixed with the populations that they came into contact with, the Proto-Indo-European language started developing into sub-branches which the Greek language would become one of. So when thinking of the Indo-European migration theory, it is best to see it as a spread of languages and ideas. These migrations didn't all take place at once, but over a large span of time, many in short, sharp events such as wars and competition for local resources, while many would have taken place over longer periods of time through trade, colonisation and overpopulation. This would have meant the migration and dispersal of a great many different ethnic and cultural groups which in turn would have brought them into contact with a great many other groups. This, I think, is what may have led to the development of the uniquely Greek way that we're all aware of today. Not just the migrations and isolation, but a great many different conditions, the geography of the land, the climate, the indigenous populations, and their local interactions. Furthermore, contact with travellers and traders from other regions, migrations of populations into the region, peacefully or through war, and new ideas and methods that followed would have all blended in with the old. Eventually this would have produced what we now see as the Greeks, when history starts giving us a view into their past. This is what most likely makes cultures unique. All the variables are mixed in over time, and developed in their own conditions, producing something very different than what has been seen elsewhere, but still with roots that can be traced to ideas and developments with other cultures. With these migrations into Greece, and the ideas that they brought with them, it was inevitable that technological change would take place. As societies were becoming larger and more sophisticated, there was a huge leap forward in technological change in agriculture, animal husbandry, architecture, writing and metalwork. It had long been thought that most of the advances in these areas made their way into Greece 
from the Near East, as there is also evidence of writing and development of advanced civilization taking place there earlier. Though evidence in Greece and other parts of Europe have now indicated that advances in agriculture, herding and metalwork were developing around the same time as they were in the Near East. In regards to agriculture, it appears that some sort of primitive farming was taking place in parts of Greece. Around the same time, signs of development of agriculture were appearing in the Near East. At the Franchithi cave site, evidence of this early form of agriculture is seen through the discovery of wild oats, barley and lentils in the levels associated with the late Paleolithic and into the Mesolithic periods. This would indicate that parts of Greece independently invented the fundamental notion of agriculture with wild grains and plants. The appearance in Greece of domesticated seeds and grains from the Near East had in the past served to give the picture the Greeks had learnt agriculture from their Near Eastern neighbours. Though the discoveries at Franchithi and other sites have called into question this theory, showing that primitive agriculture may well have begun independently in parts of Greece. Though once domesticated grains and plants made their way from the Near East, a more uniform and consistent picture of farming started to take shape since these domesticated crops were much more suited to agricultural activity, since they had been purposely modified over time by humans to be of more use as a food source. As more discoveries regarding early agriculture were being made, the understanding of how technology spread started to change, and now appears to show the Greeks, as well as many other cultures, developed technologies through a complex mixture of independent innovation and contact with other cultures. We only have small snapshots that help us try and understand what was taking place over such a vast period of time, so unveiling these complexities will still have to rely on a large degree of interpretation of the available evidence. We also see a similar picture develop as metalworking started making an appearance, which would eventually lead to the Bronze Age, and we will look at this more closely in our next episode. In this episode so far, we have been speaking about some periods in time that are hard to comprehend how long ago they really were. So how have archaeologists and historians been able to use evidence to point to periods in time this far back and give accounts on what was likely happening in them? Well, they are normally able to ascribe dates to objects and events based on two criteria known as relative dating and absolute dating, which a number of methods can be classified into. Relative dating is when an actual age of an object or an event cannot be known for sure, but it is possible to determine the impossibility of it existing or taking place before and after a particular known time. This creates an order of objects and events being able to point to what came first, second, third, and so on, though without actual dates to ascribe to them. Classifying the types and associations of objects in the context of where they were found also aids in arriving at a relative date or sequence. Absolute dating is when an actual date or date range can be given to objects or events, such as when events described in written history have dates associated with them, and when objects have dates marked on them, such as coins or tombstones. Association and context here also plays a part in dating other objects and events found with something with an absolute date. Though when looking as far back in history that we have been this episode, other means need to be found to provide an absolute date. One of the most common methods that helped date much of what we have spoken about this episode comes from radiocarbon dating, along with forming associations with objects dated by this method. I thought we would have a quick look at how radiocarbon dating works, so I found it quite interesting and it forms our current fundamental understanding of events in prehistory. This method was first demonstrated by Willard Libby in 1949 and has been further refined to produce more accurate readings. 
For his work in this field, Libby went on to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1960. Radiocarbon dating is a process that measures the rate of decay of carbon-14 in material, which is unstable and radioactive. It is then measured against carbon-12 and carbon-13, which are much more stable, than by seeing how much carbon-14 remains compared to the known half-life of carbon-14, a measurement of time can be arrived at to date the object. The half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years, which means it takes that long for half of carbon-14 to decay. Every time the half-life is reached, an additional 5,730 years has passed. So when 50% of carbon-14 remains, 5,730 years have elapsed. Then we halve that 50% and 25% of the carbon remains, and a total of 11,460 years have passed. Then we halve that 25% to where 12.5% remains, and a total of 17,190 years have passed. And this can continue on. This method is pretty accurate when measuring up to around 50,000 years in the past, though there are special methods that can be used when measuring material that dates much further back. To use this method, the material being tested had to be living at some stage, such as animal and human remains, wood, and plant-based material. The result given shows a number of years since it ceased to be living, so when an animal dies or once a tree has been chopped down. Libby had stated that the level of cosmic radiation throughout history may have varied, which was confirmed when more unreliable results were returned on known historical dates on tested items. The accuracy of radiocarbon dating further increased when the calibration technique of comparing the results to tree ring samples occurred. Softwood type trees were used to make these calibrations as they were more sensitive to environmental factors. Eventually a curve was created to where the radiocarbon age could be converted into a calendar age. I hope that gives a basic idea on how material in the prehistory can be dated. There is a lot of easily accessible technical information out there if you want to look a bit deeper into how it all works. This now brings us near the end of the first episode of the series, and we have covered quite a large expanse of time. The intention was to just give a brief overview of what was happening in the prehistoric period. We have covered some fundamental elements that will help us understand perhaps why the Greeks developed as they did. We had a look at the geography and climate of Greece, which would play a large part in how their societies would be structured. Some of the geography that would play a part in affecting the Greeks would be the access to open plains if they were enclosed by mountainous areas and if they were located inland or in a coastal region. These and also the climate would then have an influence on the security, economy, social and political structures, as well as their contact with other societies. Next we saw how far back the human activity dates to in Greece itself from the current evidence. These are just extremely narrow glimpses into the past and it is impossible to say for certain what was taking place, but lets us theorise based on the current evidence. We also saw as time moved on, more human activity was taking place at many more areas, and the species of human was changing, while evidence of the older species had disappeared. As more activity was taking place in more areas, contact between different groups was more likely, and allowed for sharing of ideas, peacefully or violently. Larger settlements developed, and with their more sophisticated societies within them. We then had a look at the Indo-European migration theories, we showed how language and certain ideas may have found their way into Greece. The migration of the language and ideas took place through the physical movement of groups of people, as well as trade and cultural exchange. Also, as we discussed, these transfers of knowledge would have taken place in peaceful endeavours, as well as hostile ones, in different locations and different points of time, 
Again, I think it is important to think of the Indo-European idea as a diffusion of language and ideas, as the roots of these can be found through many cultures, and date back to a central point where they seem to have developed. This then briefly brought us to look at how technologies had come about, looking at if the early inhabitants had invented new ways for dealing with the realities of life, or they had found their way into the society through foreign contacts. From the evidence we talked about, it seems this isn't a simple either-or scenario, but a complex mixture of individual innovations as well as contact from outsiders, which over a large span of time would develop into a unique Greek way. Finally, we had a simple rundown of how evidence is dated to give us a timeline, and in particular the method of radiocarbon dating, which has only recently given us the ability to look further back in time with a higher degree of certainty. Next time we will look into the start of the Bronze Age, which would see the development of yet more sophisticated societies. We will also look at the fairly recent rediscovery of two civilizations that date back to this period that had been for over a thousand years thought just part of the tales told by the ancients. So until then, thank you for your support, and I hope to see you next time for episode 2, A Time of Bronze.